All right. Well, good morning, Bible Chapel. I want to welcome our Washington, our Robinson, our Ross Traver, and Wilkinsburg campuses. Uh, how, how was everyone's Thanksgiving? Was everybody a good Thanksgiving? Well, I'm happy before you because I was in bed sick all week. That's okay. <laughs> so if you're wondering why I just moved two bottles of water over there, I've been uh, saving them uh, during the 9 a.m. I didn't cough, but I had to take a few sips. So if I need to take a break... Uh, that, that is why. So across our country, we have a thing we do uh, this time of year where we transfer over from Thanksgiving to Christmas real quick, right? Black Friday now begins on Thanksgiving Thursday. I mean, Thursday afternoon, retailers open their doors for Black Friday. Now, I, I can't say if it's a major debate in our country, but I can say it's a pretty serious debate in the DiDonato household. My wife, Krista, and I are on the separate sides of the aisle on this debate of some, is it too early to do these Christmas festivities before Thanksgiving? So I thought there's no more healthier way to solve a marriage dispute than to involve the congregation. Do you agree? <laughs> We're going to let the congregation across all our campus has decide. Uh, at the 9 a.m., the South Hills and Robinson campuses, they sided with me. Uh, Washington did not, so your vote is not counted at the 1045. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, so Zeb, Tom, uh, Nathaniel, and Ted, you guys let me know what the campuses vote on here. And uh, I, all I can do is see what the South Hills. All right, so I'm going to give you five questions and they all start with this phrase, is it okay before Thanksgiving? All right, here's the first one. Is it okay before Thanksgiving to play Christmas music? If it's a yes, raise your hand. No, keep your hand down. You can't vote, I don't care. I'm going to say that's a yes. That's a yes. All right. Well, what? <laughs> I can, <laughs> we can't have a tie. It looked yes to me. All right. <laughs> Number two, is it okay before Thanksgiving to put up your Christmas tree? All right, that's definitely a no uh, in the South Hills. Number three, is it okay before Thanksgiving to put up your Christmas lights, your outside lights? Oh, man. This is a harsh crowd. The 9 o'clock <laughs> was not as verbal. Okay. All right. Number four. Is it okay before Thanksgiving to begin Christmas shopping? Yeah. Oh, of course. Shopping. Yes. Yes. All right. Two to two with some controversy on number one, but two to two. <laughs> number, number, uh, number five. Here we go. Is it okay before Thanksgiving to start watching Christmas movies? We're going to go with the yes and I win. All right, there we go. I said, I go. I mean, I'm not feeling good. My eyes are a little off, you know. Uh, Kristen's in Wilkinsburg shaking her head right now. All right, well, we had a little fun there because uh, we are excited that we are beginning uh, our Christmas uh, series today. 
And I want you to know that a team, including all the campus pastors, man, we met a few times over the past month praying, discussing, and planning where we start today in this series. So let me pray before we get into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for today. And God, that, that time of just laughter together as the congregation is a, is a reminder of the joy that we have, knowing that because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection, as we'll discuss today, we have eternal life. God, that's the, that's the, the joyfulness that we celebrate this Christmas season. So, Father, as we begin this series and as we dig into your, God, uh, your word this morning, I pray that, God, you would speak as only you can. So let the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring and pleasing to you, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you were with us in the fall, we did a series that was entitled Unselfie, We, Not Me. The purpose of that series was to address the issue of self-focus, that we need to live beyond ourselves. We focused on we in two ways. First, vertically, the we relationship that we need to have with the living God. It starts right there. And we challenged ourselves to have a deeper relationship with the Lord. We also looked horizontally with our relationship with others. That, man, if we, if we get that relationship with God right, then, then naturally what should flow is richer relationships with others as we become not self-focused, but others-focused. Now, the anchor of that series was Matthew chapter 22 in the Great Commandment. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start there again, just as a refresher. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. In this chapter, the Pharisees and Sadducees are, are throwing Jesus a bunch of questions and verse 15 says their goal was this. They wanted to entangle him. They wanted to trap him in his words. So here we have another question from the Pharisees in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This Pharisee, a lawyer, most likely would have been an expert in the law, he says, Jesus, of the 613 commands of the law, which one command would you say gets at the heart of them all? Jesus first quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus stated, said, more important then you going about and, and ranking uh, a relative ranking scale of all the different laws, it comes down to this. 
Do you have total devotion to the living God? The heart, soul, and mind, that trio represents a a comprehensive picture of the whole person. A total, loving, intimate relationship with God. And then he says the second is like it, meaning it kind of flows from that. And this time he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus most likely is referring to that natural self-love we do every day without even really knowing it. When I'm hungry, I feed myself. When I'm thirsty, I drink. When I'm tired, I go to sleep. Uh, At least Chris and I used to before we decided to have kids, right? That's what happens. But Jesus says everything in this book can be summed up in those two statements. Love God with all your being and then love others as yourself. You get that vertical relationship right. The horizontal is going to happen naturally. Unselfie, we, not me. That was our focus in the fall. And after these meetings of prayer and discussion, we landed right back to unselfie for Christmas. And we're calling this one unselfie Christmas. He, not me. Because we're going to look right at the life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look foundations on these two statements. Jesus, our Savior, that he is the only way to have a relationship with the living God. He is the only way for you to have eternal life. And Jesus, our model. He's the only one we desire to follow. We're going to look at the life of Jesus and make sure without a doubt that every person who walks in our campuses this Christmas season knows what it means to proclaim Jesus as your Savior and knows what it looks like to follow him as your model. So to begin this series, we're actually going to go right back to Matthew chapter 22. So go right back there. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Like I said, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they throw Jesus a series of questions. And then at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 41, Jesus flips the script. He asks the Pharisees a question. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. So Jesus' question to the Pharisees, focuses on this really one word, Christ. In the Greek, it's this word, Christos. It means anointed one, chosen one. It gets its Greek, the Greek equivalent, it comes really from this Hebrew word, Mashiach. That word means Messiah. Christ is not so much a name, it's a title. So if someone says Jesus Christ, they're saying Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the chosen one. Jesus, the Messiah. So the Pharisees, knowing exactly what that title means, they respond as what they believe is the correct answer. They say the son of David. 
Now, based off Old Testament passages, such as 2 Samuel 7 and others, the Jews' messianic expectation was that the Christ, their Messiah, would come from King David's lineage. And their hope was just as David defeated his political enemies, that their Messiah, the son of David, would destroy their political enemy, the Roman Empire. The son of David was also the popular title uh, just in the crowds of who they thought the Messiah would be. When Jesus was doing his miracles and, and his teaching, people started to say, could this be him? Could this be that son of David? 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And guess what? All the time. It outraged the Pharisees because they knew what that meant. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus delivers a demon-possessed man, we have this interaction in verse 23 and 24. And all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man can cast out demons. The crowd saw Jesus for who he was, or at least they had a hope that he could be the one. The Pharisees, completely blind, they say he's just Beelzebul. That is slang for Satan. They're, they're saying he, he's just some subordinate of the devil. He, he's not our Messiah. So, so with that background... That, that Jesus knows that they would say this answer and that that is who they believe the Christ would be. And he already knows it has outraged them before when he was declared that title. He's now going to dig deeper into their answer. So look at verses 43 through 46. So Jesus says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So to reveal the identity of the Christ further and to question them on that title, Son of David, was it sufficient? Jesus pulls out Psalm 110, a psalm of David, a psalm that the Pharisees would have known well. He quotes from Psalm 10, verse 1, and he poses these two titles, the one that they gave, Son of David, and then the one that David gave, which is Lord. And he kind of puts, puts it together. How does this work? He says, you said, son of David. But if the Christ is just David's physical son, Jesus asked them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? I mean, seriously, what father calls their son Lord? Unless somehow he is his superior. And then he goes the other way. Well, let's just start with what David said. If then David calls him Lord, 
then how can he also be his son? Make sense again. How does David's Lord, seated at the right hand of God, in any way could be a physical descendant of David? Now, before we look at the Pharisees' response, let's break this down a little further. And a key thing that Jesus does, which is true of all of Scripture, is he makes sure the Pharisees know who actually wrote Psalm 110, right? Go back to verse 43. Jesus said, how is it then that David in the Spirit? Meaning, this is the Spirit of God speaking through David. He's saying this isn't David's own thoughts or words. This is God himself speaking his oracle through David, right? And we know throughout Scripture, 1 Timothy tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant without error, and it's authoritative for every area of his life. And Jesus says, so this is God's word. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, so he's using Psalm 10, he uses these two words for Lord. First one is all caps. Whenever you see that, that's the Hebrew covenant name for God, Yahweh. No questions asked. That is God. That is Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh said to my, David says, my Lord. This word is Adonai. Now Adonai could be used in two ways in the Old Testament. It's often used to refer to God himself. But it can be used, as David actually does in other texts, to a physical superior. So he actually called King Saul at one point, my Lord, meaning my, my, my respect to him as our king of Israel. So the question is, is David speaking of just some earthly king or is he talking about someone greater than he? Well, I believe God speaking through David and why Jesus is using this song, he leaves no question that David was talking about the divine Messiah here. You see, in that same verse, the only one that Jesus needed to use, he then says this, sit at my right hand. No other person in all of scripture is ever said to or commanded to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. That position of authority, of honor, of power that is equal with God is given to the Christ alone until, as it says right there, the end of the ages. And God through David is prophetically speaking here of when the Christ, as we know, is Jesus, would one day die, be buried in the grave, rise again, and then he would ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the throne of God until he comes again. And that's where Jesus is right now. That's why Psalm 110.9 ends this way, that he will come back one day to, quote, execute judgment among the nations. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting 
from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus leaves no question. This is the divine Messiah here. So, so why is Jesus doing this? Well, here's the deal. Jesus never said the Pharisees' answer, son of David, was, was wrong, really. He's just showing them it's fall, it, it, it falls so short, though. If you just think your Messiah is some great human being who's some great king, you're missing it. The problem was it's because they were missing their biggest need. If they only claim that he is just a physical descendant of David, they fall short of the true identity of the Christ. Because here's the deal. There's only one answer to Jesus' question on how can this Lord be both David's son and David's Lord. That answer is, the biblical answer is, the Christ, the Messiah, must be both David's son, fully human, and David's Lord, fully God. Fully human as a descendant of David, as promised in Scripture, and fully God as David's Lord. Now, it's often said that silence is agreement, right? The Pharisees really had no trouble in Scripture ever speaking up to Jesus. They love refuting him. And they have an open mic right here. If they thought this my Lord was just some earthly king or descendant of one day, they could have they spoke up and proved Jesus wrong. But they don't. They're completely silent. Matthew says, no one dared to answer him, nor ever ask him any more questions. Two options then. Either the theological complexities of the discussion were just too much for them, or they refused to acknowledge the deity of the Christ or the need of the deity of their Messiah. Reading through this passage, you know, uh, there's oftentimes in Scripture when I have read uh, with Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and I get, I get annoyed by them, right? Like, what's wrong with you guys? He's right there. He is right there. But when I read this one this week, I couldn't help but think how tragic this is. These Pharisees, the religious elite who knew the Old Testament from front to back, they were waiting for this Messiah. The problem was they were waiting for just some cultural and political deliverer. And they didn't recognize that they needed the deliverance of their sin. And no human king was going to be able to do that. They needed a Messiah that was greater than them, far greater than them. And Jesus proclaims what they need right to them. And not only that, he's it. He is standing right in front of them. And they miss him. We don't know if some of them came to a saving faith in that conversation later on. But right there, no one acknowledged him. I was thinking, man, if only, only they had the heart of Peter 
that when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who loved to speak up, right? He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are it, Jesus. You're fully human, fully God. You're the Messiah. As Paul proclaimed in the opening to the Roman letter, verses 3 and 4, he says concerning his son, capital S, who was descended from David according to the flesh, fully human, and was declared to be the son of God, fully God, in power according to the spirit of holiness. And that proof was by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our God, our Lord. All right. So what does this text have to do with our Christmas series and where we're headed? Well, I was thinking this week, sadly, tragically, like the Pharisees, many people this Christmas will go all the way up through December 25th and completely miss Jesus. They will never mention his name. They will never give him the praise that he is due. Worst of all, they'll go another year without ever acknowledging him as their Savior and Lord. That can't be us. That cannot be us in our campuses today. So I want to give us three applications. Really, they're, they're kind of like three challenges. The first is an invitation. The other two are more challenges that will set the tone, the broad scope of our prayer for this Christmas series as we head through the coming weeks. So here we go. We're going to drive these home using those two pillars, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our model. First one is this. It starts with Jesus, your Savior. Have you professed faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The first step in starting an unselfie life, a relationship with the living God, is giving him your life. Everything else I talk from now on doesn't matter if you have yet to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. Have you proclaimed him, professed him as your Savior and Lord? If Jesus were not the eternal God, which is an absolute critical truth to Christianity, it's the heart of Christianity, because other religions, they'll, they'll acknowledge Jesus in a way. They'll say he was a great prophet. He was a great teacher. Some will say, he, well, he was a God of many gods. But we say, no, he is the God, the only way. And if he was not the eternal God, then his death would have done nothing for our sin. It would not have been sufficient to cover our sin. But, man, we praise God that he is the eternal God. As Paul proclaimed in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and really for Jesus. You were created for him. And as the eternal God, 
He's the only one who lived without sin. Therefore, he could take on your sin. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, he took on the cross in his perfection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin when he knew no sin, so that you and I in him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid the penalty that we owed. He went to the cross, was buried in a grave, and rose again, and he conquered sin and death once and for all. So it starts right there. Our prayer, this Christmas series, that every person that walks through every campus the next six weeks, that none would leave without professing faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It starts right there. And my words have zero power to do it. But God's word has all the power. And our prayer is that you have never made that profession that the Holy Spirit grabs you today and draws you into a relationship with the living God. When Jesus is your Savior, that's when you begin the greatest journey of your life. Your whole life has a brand new focus, and now it's to follow him. So here's the next two points. If Jesus is our model, two things we should be doing. The first is this. We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus. For believers, part of following Christ and modeling him is to go to those who have never trusted in him and proclaim his good news. Jesus said his mission statement in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and save the lost. I love that. Jesus didn't say, I came to chill in the synagogue. If you want to come visit me, come on. And then I'll tell you the good news. No, he's like, I came to seek, go after, to share who I am. In Scripture, there's over 60 occurrences where Jesus is interacting with, with individuals about who he is. May we do the same. Seek opportunities to share our faith. Now, one way to engage people with the gospel is to at least invite them to church. So we want to challenge you, starting this week, to pray on who can you engage and simply invite them to the Christmas series that your church is doing this year. I know we've probably shared this in the past, but in 2013, Facts and Trends did a study with Gallup that showed that 43% of people in America, so that's about 135 million people at that time, were considered unchurched. They didn't go anywhere to church. And of that 43%, they asked them, would you go to church if someone invited you? Here's what they said, quote, 82% of the unchurched are likely to attend church if a friend, co-worker, neighbor, or family member invites them. 82%. They went on to say, quote, all right, the next obvious question is, are Christians inviting non-Christians to church? The heartbreaking answer is no. Only 2% of church members invite an unchurched person to church. A huge gap 
82% said they're likely to go if someone invites them. Only 2% of us are actually offering that invitation. So that challenge, by the way, starts here. Because I don't do a very good job of that. I'll admit it. Of engaging enough people, inviting them to our church. So I'm with you. And I want to challenge all of us that, man, let's engage people and simply invite them to join us. You, you can't control if they say yes or no. I'm just asking you to invite some people, not just for Christmas Eve, but through this entire Christmas series. Every week, they're going to hear about Jesus, their Savior, and how Jesus could be their model if they trust in him. Starting next week, Ron's going to lead us through the first aspect of Christ's life, which is his leadership. Ron's going to talk about unselfish leadership from Christ. So let me challenge each of us. Who can, who's one person, one person who you know right now is disconnected spiritually? We, don't, we, can't, we can't judge every person's heart, but, but who's that one person that you can invite to church next week? All right, one more. If Jesus is our model, the big other broad one is this. We will seriously follow him with every area of our life. It's amazing that Jesus, our Savior, our eternal God, was also, is fully human. He experienced the ups and downs of what we go through. He was, Scripture says, he was tempted in every manner, yet he was without sin. And he modeled for us what it looks like to live an unselfish life for the glory of God. Our prayer is that we would also leave this series not just with more head knowledge of the life of Christ, but empowered hearts by the Holy Spirit in our lives to follow Jesus' unselfish example in every area of our lives. Now, the beauty of the body of Christ is that we can also learn from one another. And we are going to try something new this year to try to, to get that going within our congregations across all of our campuses. So if you came in this morning and grabbed a bulletin, if not, grab one on the way out. We have a bookmark for you. That simply lets you know where we're headed uh, and what the titles are for each week and also some of the things we're doing that you can also invite people to this uh, Christmas. But also on our website and in the lobby of our uh, campuses, we have this thing we're doing, which is called uh, Unselfie Christmas Coaching Tips. So you can go online. Uh, they're showing you the simple steps to do that. Uh, and you can share what is something your family does during the Christmas holidays to make sure you guys stay others-focused, to live beyond yourself, not get so consumed with me, which can happen in the Christmas time. This is also in every lobby. If you want a paper copy, grab one and fill one out. We, we hope to, at the end of this Christmas series, have a whole booklet that we can put together of what we're calling coaching tips, right? To live an unselfish life during the holidays. It's a great way for us to serve one another, to follow the example of Christ. So I want to share one that was uh, submitted uh, earlier this week from the Ross Straver campus. This is from Rosemary Losser. 
She submitted a uh, great tip that her and her husband Alan do during the Christmas season to show to their grandkids, gifts are great. But it's more about relationships that God has given you. So here's what Rosemary submitted. She said, instead of buying extra toys for the grandchildren, which they don't need, each family unit gets money to spend to go on a special family outing together that they would not normally have money to do. We have four family units. So each family unit has to take a selfie of themselves enjoying the outing and send it to the rest of us so we can partake of their enjoyment. I think this is a way to serve each other by teaching that time, not things, with each other and sharing memories are the real gifts. That's a pretty cool tip, isn't it? A great simple way to, to show that it's the relationships that God has given us uh, and called to serve one another. So thank you, Rosemary and Alan, for that. And we encourage you, uh, if you have something you can share, and go on there. If you're looking for ways to incorporate this in your life, and your family's life, there are already online. We have a, a list of them. You can go on there and get some great ideas to encourage one another. All right. So how many people can admit that they woke up early on that day? I don't have the date. But to watch the last, most recent royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. How many people? Don't be ashamed. Come on. <laughs> Am I the only one? I actually watched it with my daughter because she woke me up. All right, a few people. A few people watched it. So it started, the coverage started at 4 a.m. because of the time difference. But over 29 million Americans still tuned in to watch this most recent royal wedding. Well, many believe even bigger will be the coronation of the next British monarch. That's because Queen Elizabeth has served as queen for 65 years, the longest reigning monarch. Most likely, Prince Charles will take over. And when he does, part of the coronation ceremony is when Charles will officially sit in the king's throne. This throne is called actually King Edward's chair because it was built for King Edward back in 1296. Now, one key feature, which is hard to see from this picture, it is absolutely huge. It's eight feet high, four feet wide. Now, most believe King Edward was not that big, but they were trying to emphasize something here with the throne. That was this. They want to make sure that no one king or queen can ever fill that throne. It says that Queen Elizabeth at 25 years old looked like an infant in that chair. But that's the point. There is no one person who can fill the greatness of Great Britain's royal role. Well, far greater is the everlasting role of the Christ. His eternal throne is so great that you could take David, Solomon, and all his wisdom, and the other 20 heirs of David, you can stack them up on that throne, and they'll look like a bunch of infants in the corner. They have no right on the eternal throne of the Christ. There's only one 
who could sit on that throne. And his name's Jesus Christ. And he is seated on that throne right now. And there is no space for anyone else. And his reign's forever. There is no next one. He is it. My question for you, is that how you live your life? Does Jesus have complete reign and role of your life? Have you professed faith in him? Is he your savior? It starts there, right? Do you proclaim him? Has he taken over your life so much? I mean, you just, you can't help but talk about him. Share about what he's doing in your life. He's it. And do you truly follow him with everything? Or is there space that you put some other stuff up there with him? Or is there truly no space left in your heart because Jesus has full reign of your life? That's our, that's our prayer in this series, that we get back to Jesus, which we're about to celebrate with communion. You know, when we go back to when the angel Gabriel declared of this son she was going to have, God, through Gabriel, made sure Mary knew how great he was going to be. Luke 1, 31 and 30 through 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This Christmas season, let Jesus be your savior and model for the unselfish life that God calls us to, to glorify him. Profess him, proclaim him, and follow him with everything you got. We're going to partake of communion in just a few minutes. And communion is for believers only. We want to make sure that's clear. If you have never taken that first step of professing faith in Jesus Christ alone at all of our campuses, we are glad you're here today. But please do not partake of communion unless you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. It is a believer's meal. You do not have to be a member of the Bible Chapel to partake of communion, uh, but you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. But before we partake of communion, we're going to do something a little different at all of our campuses. So hang with me, campuses. I'll hand it over in just a minute. We usually uh, go right in with a softer either song or we sing a softer song after. But we're going to go up in the communion with an upbeat song of praise. And we're going to praise the name of Jesus for who he is. And we're going to enter into communion with joy with reverence and with just exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it's awesome. As one church across all our campuses, we're going to sing these words. We're going to say, you have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name 
of Jesus. I encourage you to sing that loud as we prepare for communion this morning. I'm going to hand it over to the worship directors, and please stand here in the south. Area. <laughs>